There's something magical about kids and music. They don't know yet music is something they're supposed to be good at, or even something they're supposed to listen to. For kids, music is just something you do, and anything can be music. <laughs> this is three-year-old Evelyn singing herself to sleep. At some point, many of us, maybe most of us, lose that unbridled musical instinct. We're all kind of scared to sing and take part in communal music and dance. But I try to remind folks that, you know, at one point, everybody sang and everybody danced. That was how we connected with one another. That's how we celebrated things. You know, that's how we entertained ourselves because we didn't have all of the, the modern conveniences that uh, kept our, our minds occupied. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on the show, the joys of making music. For Tyler Hughes, music is about community. Growing up in Southwest Virginia, Tyler's been steeped in the traditions of mountain music and dance from a young age. Now he's co-director of the popular Mountain Music School and a teacher at Mountain Empire Community College. Tyler, you play the banjo and auto harp all across the Southeast. You're preserving traditional music of the Appalachians. Why does it mean so much to you? The music and the people are so connected. I think of this music as being resilient, and I often think of the people of the Appalachian region as being resilient. When folks were going through a hard time, they sang a song about that hard time, which not only helped document that moment, but often helped people cope uh, with what they were going through. Same thing with celebrations. People could create music about happy or sad times. So I think it's just very representative of the type of people we have in the mountains. Did you grow up with Appalachian music or come to it later? I think I sort of grew up with it. I didn't really get that interested into Appalachian music until I was a teenager. I grew up uh, listening to lots of country music, my mama and papa, and my parents always listened to country radio, so I was pretty familiar with that, and some bluegrass music, uh, but it wasn't really until I was a teenager when I attended uh, the Mountain Music School camp that's held here in Big Stone Gap that I really got immersed in old-time banjo and fiddle and, and the songs from the Central Appalachian region. What do you think did it for you? What set the hook for your young heart? I think for me, it was seeing how much joy it brings people to play this music. It's a very communal kind of music. There's a large focus on jamming and sharing this music with one another. If you don't know a tune, you can easily go up to a friend who knows the tune and, and ask them to share it with you. And seeing that on display at places like the camp um, really piqued my interest because it was such a hands-on and communal art form. You also call square dances. How'd you learn to do that? Who introduced you to square dancing? <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I do call square dances too. I actually started learning. I was a student at ETSU in Johnson City, Tennessee in the bluegrass and old-time music program there. And we were getting together for jams um, at folks' houses throughout the week and on the weekends. And so many people were there that didn't necessarily wanted to play. They wanted to dance or just hang out, but nobody knew how to call a dance. So I kind of just took it upon myself to say, I'm going to learn how to call so that when we have these big gatherings and parties, like people will be able to get up and dance. So I was really fortunate to have some really good friends like Rodney Sutton of the Greengrass Cloggers and my friend Julie Shepard Powell, uh, who's a wonderful banjo player and dancer. They all took some time to teach me some different calls and different dances. Do you know people who clog? 
Yeah, I know lots of different folks who clog and flat foot both. And both Rodney and Julie, those were some of the same folks that taught me how to flat foot as well. I'm I'm not the best, but um, I love to do it. It's a, a great way to exercise and, and one of the best ways to enjoy banjo and fiddle music for sure. People just don't dance so much anymore. And it's wonderful that the square dances give folks a chance to come together, don't you think? Yeah, that's been a big goal of mine over the last few years is to try and revive some of the square dancing scene that's here in Southwest Virginia. Square dances used to happen all across the United States, especially in rural communities. Uh, but of course, they've sort of faded away with time. But they're still one of the best ways to connect one another, uh, to get folks together in their community, especially at a time when we live behind screens on our phones and on our computers all the time. You know, we come from all different walks of life, but we can all get out here together and have a good time and laugh and dance and enjoy the music together. If you have your banjo right there, would you delight us with a little square dance calling and banjo playing? <laughs> yeah, I'll see what I can do. I'm going to put the phone down now and uh, we'll try to play a little tune and call a little dance. All right, here we go. A little old fashioned square dance for you. Join hands, circle eight, circle to the left, but you don't be late. Back by the right, dance all night. Into the center for a hoop and a shout. One more time, and we'll turn back out. <laughs> Tyler, I love that. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do a little bit of line dancing. Your grandparents were part of a line dancing club, right? They were. They were, they were definitely in on the 1990s line dancing craze. My grandparents would take me to their line dancing classes, um, even at four and five years old, and I would get up and, and do some of the dances. I knew some of the watermelon crawl and the boot scootin' boogie and stuff, so... <laughs> What would you wear? You would have to dress the part for sure. We would always, you know, be decked out in cowboy boots and blue jeans and cowboy hats. And down here, there wasn't a whole lot of places that would sell Western wear. So my grandparents made a special trip two hours up the interstate to Withful, where the old Fort Western store is. And they bought their square, or their line dancing outfits there. Tell me about a few of your favorite Appalachian folk songs. This is the kind of music that you want to reintroduce to people to appreciate as much as you do. Sure. One of my absolute favorite songs comes from a songwriter and musician who's not really widely known outside of Southwest Virginia or even Wise County sometimes. Her name was Kate Peter Sturgill. Um, she grew up and lived in the coal camp Josephine, just outside the city of Norton here. Um, she wrote a song called Deep Settled Peace, which I think some folks are familiar with thanks to recordings made by John McCutcheon. Uh, but she had a lot of other music that was just so beautiful. And one of those pieces that I think of all the time is My Stone Mountain Home, um, which is just a song that she wrote uh, about Stone Mountain, which is one of the main ridgelines here in Wise County. And I think of that song all the time because I'm so lucky to live in downtown Big Stone. And every morning when I open the blinds in my living room, I'm right here at the base of Stone Mountain. I can look out and see the mountain range. And it, uh, it just means so much because I love living here. I just think it's so beautiful here. So here's a snippet of My Stone Mountain Home by Kate Peter Sturgill. There's a dear old home that's old in the heart of the hills where the trailing arbutus grow. And the red rhododendrons bloom on the cliffs. It is there I am longing to go. Sweet memories return of my childhood and Sing all the day. 
Yeah, you know, I love Kate's voice. I think it's just such a true representation of what mountain music sounds like. We're all kind of scared to sing and take part in communal music and dance. But I try to remind folks that, you know, at one point, everybody sang and everybody danced. That was how we connected with one another. That's how we celebrated things. You know, that's how we entertained ourselves because we didn't have all of the the modern conveniences that uh, kept our our minds occupied. You know, Kate is really a hero of mine. Um, She was hired on by the Works Progress Administration during the Great Depression to go around and start collecting uh, songs and poems and works of art from around Wise County. And that actually led to her and a whole slew of folks creating what would become known as the Country Cabin. They took the small cabin there just outside of Norton and started having musical celebrations there and performances. And that eventually grew and developed into what we have today, which is a pretty large venue and a major venue for the Crooked Road here in Southwest Virginia. So we still have music every weekend at the Country Cabin. So people like that really inspire me that, you know, can see uh, the connection between just how important our own individual art and music and dance is and how that connects us all to the wider community and the wider world. You work at the Mountain Music School to help bring Appalachian music, not just to your local community, but to the wider world. Mountain Music School is a week-long summer music camp that we host here at Mountain Empire Community College. We're so lucky, this little college, we call it Princeton in the Pines because it's nestled right here on the mountainside (laughs) in Big Stone. And and everywhere you look, you've got beautiful views of the Blue Ridge and the Cumberland and, and the Appalachian Mountains as they all meet here in this little corner of Virginia. So it's a really scenic, uh, backdrop for where we can all get together and learn how to play old time banjo and fiddle and uh, learn how to dance and learn about the songs and the music from the Central Appalachian region. Um, It was started by a mentor of mine, uh, Suella Boatwright-Wells, and her friend Ron Short, who's still a storyteller and musician here in the region. They both really made a huge effort to make this camp accessible. So many times, whether it be the cultural arts or the fine arts, music and art is often out of reach for so many folks due to financial barriers. And that's especially true here in Southwest Virginia in the Appalachian region. We live in a pretty impoverished area where so many folks can't really take part in the arts. So they really made an effort to make sure that this camp was going to be open to everybody. So it's still one of the most affordable camps in the region. We offer almost everybody under the age of 18 can come for free. And we also offer to loan an instrument out for the whole week that they can take home each night and practice. So we try to do everything within our power to make sure that you can come for this week and take part in this music and dance and celebrate it, regardless of your financial status or where you're coming from. Do people love it? They absolutely love it. You know, for many years, we were growing so large that we (laughs) almost couldn't handle it. Uh, We we got up over 200 uh, students there a few years ago, and it was a little bit hectic. So um, nowadays, we're averaging about 120 to 140 students every summer. That's folks of all ages, from 10 years old to 100 years old. So when you're taking a class, you're learning how to play guitar, you may be sitting beside somebody who's 11 or 12 years old on one side. And then on the other side, you've got somebody that's 70 or 80 years old even. And I think that's one of the best things is just getting folks together and having that intergenerational knowledge uh, spread between one another. Was there a while, a while back, when a lot of people participating were coal miners or children and grandchildren of coal miners? Well, I think we still have a lot of folks, uh, particularly who are coming from the local area, who have connections to the mining industry. Um, I think there's a lot of preconceived notions about coal mining communities all across Appalachia. You know, I always say it's such admirable work. My papa was an underground coal miner for over 30 years. And if you've never been around folks who've had to work in the mines, you really don't understand the sacrifice that they're making. It's such a highly politicized topic, but, uh, you know, it's real life for some people. My papa 
was a very complex human being who understood that burning coal was not necessarily good for the environment, uh, but he was able to provide a really decent living for his family by mining coal. He also suffered for it. He was a victim of black lung disease and over the years had hundreds of cuts and broken bones and scars from uh, incidents that would occur in the mines. And he loved coal mining. He loved underground coal mining, but he was always very adamant that he did not believe in strip mining or mountaintop removal because to him, that was too far to see the environment degraded to that uh, point was just too much for him. Um, So, you know, I always think of him as being like a real representation of what it means to come from a coal mining community. It's much more complex than people often think. You know, you always say you cannot overstate how much this music has shaped you as a person. Help me see how so. What are the ways music has done that for you? I think one of the biggest impacts that music has had on me is just helping me see the world through a multitude of lenses. I often try to tell people that I feel like I have a big world vision and a little world vision. I'm living here in a small Appalachian town, the town that I was raised in. And that music has really helped me connect with a lot of folks that come from different places or maybe don't see things through the same perspective that I do. And that's something that I really strive to do uh, with my music. I want to tell the story of Southwest Virginia and the Appalachian region in a real way, in in that real complex, the gray area way where it's not always easy to understand. And, And through that, help educate people not only about our history, but how we've overcome challenges and how we can meet the challenges today with that same sort of grit and determination and overcome them again. Totally agree with that, and it's exciting to hear you describe that. I serve on the Big Stone Gap Town Council here, um, and we've worked really hard to revitalize our community and and try to shift the narrative uh, away from being so reliant on one industry, particularly the coal industry. We're trying to diversify our economy and just help build really a new path forward for our community and the residents here. So we, and, and part of that is tourism, of course, we rely heavily on ecotourism and cultural tourism. So we would love it if somebody out there is listening, wanted to come to Mountain Music School and stay the week in Big Stone. Be careful what you wish for, right? <laughs> Everybody might descend on you. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler Hughes, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Would you also do me the favor of playing a piece on the banjo that we could go out on? Certainly. I'll uh, play a little tune here called Did You Ever See the Devil, Uncle Joe? This is a version that comes from the Powers family, who is a family string band here in Southwest Virginia that used to play a whole lot of dances and community events uh, all across the region throughout the 1920s and 1930s. All right, here we go. is an instructor and co-director of the Mountain Music School, which is supported by Mountain Empire Community College. Tyler is also a performing musician, a teacher at Mountain Empire Community College, and a member of the Town Council of Big Stone Gap, Virginia. classes for people with exceptional needs often teach things like cooking, money skills, and street safety. Karen Feathers believes that 
Appreciating music, listening to it, discussing it, even playing music are important life skills too. Karen Feathers directs Longwood University's Longwood Life Program and works with Longwood music professor Jackie Secoy to bring music education to exceptional needs students. Karen, I hadn't realized there were programs like yours out there. Your website calls it a two-year day program for students with intellectual disabilities. They're in the 18 to 25-year age range where they gain skills for independent living. This is such a great idea and so needed. Well, I think it really is. And especially in rural counties, there's not a lot of opportunities for students to get into the workplace. Um, A lot of our students haven't been exposed to life outside of their communities. And so coming together with lots of other students their age has given them the opportunity to, to be a part of a different community. And they come to you with what level of academic skills, would you say? We have a variety. We have students who don't read. Um, We have students who read probably on a fourth grade reading level. We work a lot, say, on money skills. The delays are are sort of global from being non-readers and writers to upper elementary. It's so interesting that you also explore the fine arts. What do the fine arts, and especially music, bring to them? I think it really has enhanced and you know, had a calming effect on the students, really tapped into some, some wonderful interests that have some deep history with our students, like being connected to grandparents who also love music and being able to bring a piece of what they know, songs that other students may, not, may have never heard before. What about you, Jackie? Why do you think the music is so wonderful in this life skills class? One of the things that I see is their ability to socialize with each other and build relationships between each other and the class. I ask Karen to have all the students write down their favorite song and who who performs it or has created it. And I find all those on YouTube. And then when they come into class, I'll play those for them. And you know, say this is someone's favorite song in this classroom. So it's really fun to see their their surprise of like, oh, I know that song. That's one of my favorite songs, you know, and it's this big reveal for them. What are some of the songs that have been favorites just off the top of your head? So I think it was on our maybe first cohort or two, we did Count on Me by Bruno Mars. And that was just almost an immediate favorite. And the students loved singing it. They loved playing it. And when the pandemic hit and everybody had to go home that March of 2020, we made a video, all of us that had been involved with Longwood Life, Karen and I and others, that was us singing that song to the students. And we recorded it and sent it out to them as a way of saying, you know, we're still here, we still care about you, and we're all still a community. Something else I thought of is that has been a favorite throughout is something that Jackie has taught them and the lean on me. We've done a lot of talking about how important it is to let to help others and let others help you. We also, as you were talking, I was thinking about we did Three Little Birds, the Bob Marley song, and most of the students know that, you know, it's just, it just keeps being important in our culture. And I remember one day we were outside playing that day and the students were just loving that the area we were in, we could hear birds singing and the sun was shining and it was really kind of representing what the song was about. And they leaned into that and they really um, kind of came out in a more, I don't know, I guess a more dynamic and energetic way that day. Rise up this morning. Yeah, something else that I think has been really special um, is that students have made connections to the fact that if you know a few chords, two or three chords, four chords, you can play a lot of songs. 
and we've done a lot of searching songs that we hadn't played before that are favorites of individual students. Like what? Well, like the chords she's going to play for you now. Okay. So I put my phone down and I have my ukulele and we'll have a song, let's say Three Little Birds, and it just has three three different chords that happen in the song. And so I'll tell students to choose their own adventure and they pick one of those three chords and they only play when that chord comes up. So let's say I pick the C chord and I'm only gonna play that time. And that helps them learn to take turns, to listen to each other, and also to figure out what their skill level is. And then as we go through the class week after week, I'll say, okay, now pick a different chord. Or, okay, you're ready maybe to do two different chords. And that movement from one chord to the next is very challenging. And so they decide whether they're ready for that or not. Can you remember any students who really seemed to thrive with the music class and the ukulele? Yeah, there have been a lot of students that, you know, at first when I'm meeting them, I'm not always sure how engaged that they are with making music or if they've done it before. But there have been some that over, you know, weeks of time, as I get to know them, they sort of come out of their shells. And there was a student just this semester who, at first, she wasn't very engaged, One day we were doing one call away and she was smiling. She was playing her instrument. She was like, you know, sometimes she doesn't form complete words, but she makes sounds and she was doing that more and more. And I just saw sort of the joy come out. And I was just so excited because we finally found something I think that really spoke to her, that reached her. And that was really encouraging to me to say this, you know, we're on the right path. And not only just that student, but the rest of the class was enjoying it. So it was another way for her to engage with the other students in the class. I'm thinking of a student too, whose father is a musician. He plays in the praise band at church. He used to play, you know, in restaurants and bars and things like that. And, and, but he, he always wanted to be able to connect with his daughter to play an instrument. And he tried different instruments. The guitar was just too hard. But the ukulele has made sense. You know, there are fewer fingers than the neck is slimmer. And, and he's been so excited. She got a ukulele for Christmas and they frequently play together. Sometimes they'll send me a video of them playing a song, maybe a song that they're going to do at church together. And, um, and she's had the opportunity to play with him, which has been something that's been super special. Karen Feathers is a professor of special education and director of the Longwood Life Program. And Jackie C. Coy is a professor of music at Longwood University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Imagine you're looking at a piece of art, like a painting or a sculpture. You can probably describe it in some basic ways using math, like it's 30 inches long, it's twice as tall as it is deep, that sort of thing. And we can do the same thing with music. Robert Wells is a musician and a professor of music theory at the University of Mary Washington. And he uses math to better understand the music he loves. Robert, you have in your office something called a monochord. What is that? What does it show you? Yes, so the monochord is actually a really old instrument. It goes back to ancient Greece. The name monochord literally just means one chord. And so you can picture a string just stretched across a pair of metal bridges. So what the, the Greeks and uh, people like Pythagoras, who you might know from the Pythagorean theorem, um, found is if you divide the string in half, it's going to sound a little bit different. So instead of this, you're going to hear this. So the distance between here and here, or 
here and here would be the distance of an octaves. So then you might say, well, what if I divide the string into fourths, uh, into four parts? So here's the whole string. And here is three quarters of a string. So it kind of sounds like here comes the bride. Yeah, so if I play Here Comes the Bride, that very first pair of notes, Here Comes the Bride, dum bum, that distance is what we call a fourth. Here Comes the Bride, you can imagine, da 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 dum, one, two, three, four notes in there. Here Comes the Bride. Now the next, Here Comes the Bride. Here comes is a fourth, but here comes goes up another note. So one, two, three, four, five. Here comes the bride. So actually, we have a fourth the first time that expands to a fifth the second time. So that's a fourth. That's a fifth. You know, it's a melody we all kind of take for granted, but uh, there is kind of that interesting numerical complexity in there that's sort of hidden. Who composed Here Comes the Bride, by the way? Yes, it was actually Richard Wagner, um, German composer who uh, is famous for his operas, and that actually comes from an opera. We could also see these numbers in the way we feel the music, so the way we feel things like beat and rhythm. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience um, being, say, on the dance floor, and the music is going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Let's say now you're in a ballroom, you're doing a waltz, you might have one, two, three, one, two, three, undergirding the music. And composers from very early on have liked to play with the idea of meter and kind of throw us off. How should we be counting this music? This is the hornpipe from Handel's Water Music. And it starts off in a very nice, just kind of clean three pattern. Um, why don't we take a listen? So in the beginning, we get this very dance like one, two, three, dum, bum, dum, dun, dum. But after this kind of iconic dun, 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 we get this other kind of strange thing that happens. We've gotten very comfortable with counting to three, and then all of a sudden we get dun, 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 and so that last little part dun, 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 bum. It almost sounds like we're now going one, two, one, two, one, two. One of the questions is, how do we perform it? Do we try to perform it like it's in three, or do we give in to this kind of two pattern that the music is sounding like? And this is not an easy question to answer. Play a little bit of this Handel water music on the piano and show me, show me how you might wrestle or toy with playing it at these different rates. Sure. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two. Okay, so this is the moment. One, two, three. One, two, three. So that moment I just played. I would actually argue if I play it like that, it feels a little bit awkward. I really accent those downbeats is what they're called, beat one. So I'm going to accent the twos and listen to how it sounds in that interpretation. Okay, so one, two. So here it is again, one, two. There's another example you might demonstrate for us on the piano, the opening to Franz Liszt's Invocation from Poetic and Religious Harmonies. What do you notice about this opening? Right, well, it has this very kind of spiritual, evocative quality because it is this almost opening prayer to this very religious set. It's easy to kind of get lost in the opening and get lost into what sounds like, kind of like in the handle, what sounds like a two pattern. One and a two and a one.
So it's just this glorious opening, like I said, very spiritual. And I think part of the spirituality is the sense of kind of ambiguous meter. When you first hear the piece, it really does just sound like we're going one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. But then the melody comes in. And we realize what we're actually hearing is one, two, three. And so it's kind of this revelation like, oh, wait, actually three is the key number here. And it turns out from the very beginning, Liszt has written this in a triple meter. He has written everything in three. The very first note we hear is actually beat two. So it all feels very kind of disorienting. But I kind of suspect that Liszt wanted to get this kind of evocative sense. Like he doesn't want it to be too square. He wants it to feel for that spiritual kind of effect. Like things are kind of blurred around the edges. You know, we can't just lock into this kind of square meter too easily. Do you think this metric tension you're describing is just in classical European music, or do you also see it in other world music traditions? So this sort of metric tension is definitely present in music around the world. For instance, in South India, there is this really strong role of metric tension, perhaps even more so than in Western music. In Indian music, it's most common that you'd be counting to eight, actually. And it's also very common to count to things like five and seven. So you might have like uh, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. Or you might have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And not only that, against these kind of more asymmetrical meters, you will have the musical phrases kind of acting in tension where they do not seem to fit into these, um, what's called tala. So instead of meter Indian music, it's called tala, these counting cycles. The other interesting thing is, in South India, they will actually track the tala with hand gestures. You'll even see audiences doing this. Uh, not only is the music, let's say we're counting to three, we're not just counting to three, we'll also be doing something like maybe clap, clap, wave, clap, clap, wave. And when I say wave, this is basically kind of turning the hand over uh, so the back of the hand is hitting the palm. So, that is actually a physical way of expressing meter that happens in Indian music that allows this really complex degree of tension. So I'll give one example. This is a composition called Varavina. It's what's called a gitam, which is kind of a teaching piece for students who are first learning South Indian vocal music. And this one, while I'm performing, I'm actually going to be doing the gestures corresponding to the tala. This one is in three, and so I will be going clap, clap, wave clap, clap, wave to keep track of the tala. So here's a little bit of Varavina. Varavina mridu pani vannaru halo chanarani suruchira bambharaveni suranuta kalyani Nirupama Shupaguna Lola Niratajaya Pradashila Varada Priyaranganayaki Vanchita Paladayaki Sarasija Sanajanani Jaya 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 Rani Varavina Mridupani That's beautiful. How did you learn to make those intonations the way you are? Right. At University of Mary Washington, um, I direct the Indian Music Ensemble, and part of that ensemble, we work with local um, musicians in the Indian classical tradition. And uh, there's actually a vocalist who we've worked with who has come in multiple semesters to teach us a lot of the fundamentals. And the traditional way of learning this music is your teacher sings a phrase and you try to sing it back as precisely as possible, trying to imitate exactly what you're hearing. And this includes every little glide, every little slide. So for instance, if the teacher sings Varavina and I sing back Varavina, the teacher would say, no, mm -hmm. let's, let's listen again, Varavina. Because what I need to do is on that second note, Vara, do a little dip. That is essential to the melody. If I don't do that, I am not 
uh, faithfully reproducing the melody. Yes. And so that repetition happens until the student has learned the whole song. We can actually do them in multiple speeds. So here's that same melody in what's called second speed, which is twice as fast. But what I'm doing with my clap, clap wave underneath that one, two, three will actually stay exactly the same. So instead of going, in second speed, it would sound like this. Completely different experience. When you were a boy musician, did you appreciate the math back then? Were you also sort of electrified by it? I was definitely electrified by the math, although I think as a young boy, my, my question was, I, I kind of got the sense that there was a connection there, but I couldn't quite articulate what it was. And I used to kind of play around trying to figure out, is there a way of combining math and music? And, you know, I would try to do things like just graphing out using like an XY axis, trying to graph out a melody. And I, I never really got much of anywhere because, again, I didn't really know what I was doing, but it was always something I was curious about from a young age. Even as a music theorist, I often enjoy just sitting back and kind of turning my brain off and just letting it wash over me. So music is a beautiful thing. <laughs> Robert Wells is a professor of music theory at the University of Mary Washington. Sixty years later, the Beatles still capture new audiences. Tom Payne is a music professor at William & Mary, where he's helping a new generation fall in love with John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Tom Payne's specialty is actually medieval 13th century religious polyphony, but he says the Beatles are a foolproof way to get students excited about studying music. Tom, you first heard the Beatles when you were five and you went nuts. What do you remember from that? It's one of my clearest memories. I remember bouncing up and down on my bed with a coonskin cap on top of my head and a music box in the shape of a guitar, like a <laughs> crazy whirling dervish. I, I remember distinctly looking at my parents from the bed to the door. Who was, they were standing in the doorway, just nonplussed, shaking their heads, laughing. <laughs> Where were you hearing the Beatles and what were they playing? They must have been on television. So I'm assuming that it was their first performance on The Ed Sullivan Show, February 1964, I think. And we had heard a lot about the fact that they were coming over and that here was this band. All they did was sing, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were waiting to hear the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeahs. Let's play a couple of those earliest songs and things that you have noticed about their growth, even in the early days. Sure. Why don't we start with Love Me Do? It's about as simple as you can get. <laughs> right. Very simple. <laughs> Very simple. And yet it's in, it's incredibly infectious. But the best part is when Paul delivers the uh, the title line going way down low and, and singing these very blues-inflected notes when he goes, Love me do, oh, love me do. Love me do. So from this, you know, there's really only one way to go, and that's up. I mean, Love Me Do was a, was a moderate hit, but by the time they get to uh, say, I Want to Hold Your Hand, their fifth single, they've really mastered the art of perfecting the perfect hit single. So when I Want to Hold Your Hand starts up, it's incredibly exciting. Here we go. Say to me, let me be your man. 
when they jump up to a high falsetto note, it's on a very kind of tension-inducing chord, and it just, it just makes the audience go crazy. Even so, we still have these kind of rather insipid, if you will, adolescent, romantic, <laughs> uh, high school-oriented lyrics, and they start being asked, can't you write something more mature? You've got such a great platform. Uh, Bob right. Dylan actually said to them, you've got such a great platform. Why are you hiding behind these, these uh, adolescent facades here? You've got a real duty to, uh, to speak up and say something important. As a result, John comes up with this song, Help, which is perhaps their first verifiable song that isn't about adolescent love. And with this, you get the idea that John's got this kind of band of brothers, maybe in his head, uh, that's kind of helping him through these difficult times. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help, when I was younger, so much younger than Oh, I love the falsetto again. Yeah, the falsetto. And this time, it's not a gimmick. It's, an, it's essentially an actual cry for help. So that was John Lennon writing help. What about Paul McCartney writing yesterday? Uh, yesterday, of course, is very, it's one of the most famous of all the Beatles songs. With this, we've got, to me, a love song for sure, but one that's so much more vivid and mature than before. And it's brought out beautifully in this setting with Strings by George Martin. Yesterday All my troubles seemed so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be He was so young when he's speaking, so wistfully about life and having this nostalgia, what losses had he experienced by now? Um, the big one was that he lost his mother at an early age, I think the age of around 15 or so. And, uh, and some people have suggested that yesterday might actually uh, involve him thinking about his mother, not necessarily a, a lost romantic love. Another song that you like to talk to your students about is Eleanor Rigby from the Beatles' seventh album. Why does that draw your attention? This is a song that sounds, in many cases, very dark and ominous. It's about two people who essentially occupy the same space, and we get the sense that they could find happiness if they would only meet each other. And ironically, the way they come together at the end of the song is by having Father Mackenzie bury Eleanor Rigby in the church where he served, wiping his hands as he walks from the grave. So, in a sense, they come together in her death, but never having met each other while alive. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Lives in a dream, waits at the window, wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Who is it for all the lonely people? Where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Father Mackenzie. Writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes You've said that sometimes in your class you sing along with one or more of these tunes with your students, or at least have over the years. Is that right? Yeah. In, in fact, what I do is I bring out my guitar and we'll do something like, we, we frequently do Yesterday, which everybody knows. And uh, last semester I taught it, we uh, sang Let It Be together, and everybody seemed to like that as well. In fact, um, I, it was reported to me at one point that a student had gone home and regaled the roommate with the experience of it. At the same time, she was weeping, weeping just uh, with, the, with the emotional intensity of it all. Let's go out on one final song, the one with a little help from my friends. Tell me about that song and what stands out for you. The song is all about... Uh, gaining confidence in yourself. So when Ringo starts off, he says, what would you do if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? 
Of the of the song, we have Ringo essentially doing one of the bravest things he's ever done, which is to sing the final title line and jump up to a very very high note, the highest note that he can actually sing comfortably, and uh, <laughs> and it's just a really uh, a really kind of uplifting journey that you go through. Tom Payne is a professor of music at William & Mary. Support for this episode of With Good Reason comes from the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. This is a charitable trust created by the will of acclaimed 20th century artist Joseph Cornell that honors the memory of the artist and his younger brother Robert. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Costo and Lillian Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>